Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of August 6th, and this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. We'll start off with this week's big deals. The private equity firm Clayton Duvillier and Rice is closing its largest ever fund at $26 billion. And the firm also announced it would take the packaging firm Vertiv private in a $2.3 billion deal. Blackstone is closing a record energy transition private credit fund at over $7 billion. CVC raises $4.5 billion for its sixth Asia-focused fund. Banner Ridge raises $2 billion for its latest flagship fund, which is a secondaries fund. Revelstoke Capital Partners raises funds with $1.7 billion of committed capital. Now let's jump into the main stories for this week. As fundraising has become more challenging over the past 12 months, private equity firms have started offering sweeteners to lure reluctant investors. This includes things like discounts on fees, co-investment opportunities, and apparently in some cases, even a share of their management fees. The last one's really what gets me. I mean, a share of the management fee that you're charging for managing the capital that others have given you. I mean, it's, it's kind you know of what? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of ways to think about that. I mean, one one way to think about this is I, I look at this stuff sometimes as the way that New York real estate works, which is they'll give you the first month free. They'll never reduce the price, but they'll give you the first month free, which is a way that they don't want to have to reduce the headline price. And so maybe there's all sorts of different chicanery you run through in order to not reduce the headline management fee. Um, the second thing, though, and this is a more positive way to look at it, is there is this aspect of leading in investing in these funds where once a very big sponsor comes in and sort of gives you the anchor check, then the rest of the fund closes easily based off of that. And in that case, it kind of makes sense that maybe you share some of those management fees back with that firm as a way of incentivizing them to you know, be the first one to put the check into the new fund and kind of anchor it. Um, so there's a couple of different ways to think about it, but yeah, I mean, it could be a clever strategy. It just on its face, you know, seemed pretty bizarre. I mean, it's like, and it's like going to your doctor and the doctor gives you back part of the hospital bill, you know, that you paid. I but mean, that's it, kind of exactly, isn't that exactly how, uh, the medical system works though, too, right? They have these giant list prices and then the, the insurer, but no one actually pays those and it kind of just recycles through. I mean, it's, it, it does strike smack as, uh, one of these things that you use to reduce the fees without actually having to reduce the fees. Right. Just makes them, the numbers all the more meaningless, but, uh, yeah, I mean, look, maybe, uh, I mean, I, the other thing to put in perspective here is, you know, there was still over half a trillion dollars raised in the first six months of the year. I, I realize that's down that 30 or 35% from the last year, but it, it's still an insane amount of capital. And, you know, these funds have been relying on appreciating asset values for, for over a decade at this point. Um, so, you know, again, I, I think it's important to keep things in perspective like this. Perhaps this is just a, you know, a return to a little bit more normalcy in the amount of private capital. Operating. This is normal procedure. I mean, you know, giving discounts to certain investors who are bringing bigger checks. I mean, this is typical stuff that I, I think that you would do. And so I'm not convinced that this is a sign of the times or anything like that either. Uh, I agree, Adam. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a lot of money. A lot of money's being raised less than last year. I mean, you know, let's relax a little bit. I think these headlines are pretty sensationalistic. The thing that I find interesting is there's this new rule 
that you might have seen that the SEC has proposed to eliminate side letters in the in private capital. And, you know, these side letters uh, allow certain investors to get preferential treatment, usually on fees, on co-investment rights. These types of things will be outlined in a side letter. And like I said, it's 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 one of those kind of things that's an important way potentially to get in that first big check or something like that, getting the, the, the really important LPs into your fund. And the SEC's looking to get rid of that is what's been proposed so far. So it'll be really interesting to see how these things play out when you have to use the same rules for everyone, or maybe there'll just be more chicanery to get around whatever, you know, set up whatever technically is a side letter um, inside of a fund. Most certainly. Private equity will find a way. Absolutely. <laughs> There's no doubt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, it's that, you know, every few years, something comes up about the carried interest, uh, you know, provisions and, uh, you know, there's always they always find a way to to make sure that the industry continues to thrive and, and everything. The, the, the Teflon dawn of, you know, bills on the hill trying to get past. Let's move on to our next topic. President Biden is proposing an effective ban on USVC and PE investments into Chinese tech companies. He's doing this via an executive order in the name of national security. And basically what this would do is prevent U.S. individuals and institutions from making investments uh, or any type of M&A or joint venture activity um, with Chinese companies that are involved in the development of AI, um, quantum information technologies, and semiconductors and microelectronics. Well, you know, I, and everyone's an AI company today, right? So, I mean, I th- this could be like the, the most blanket <laughs> thing in history, uh, investing in, in tech companies and, you know, a $19 trillion uh, economy, um, or, or perhaps it'll be, you know, interpreted a bit a bit more narrowly. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I mean, I mean, on its face, you know, it certainly seems like this has the potential to cause VC investors and, and whole VC complexes. I mean, like you saw with Sequoia breaking up um, to really, uh, you know, sort of pivot or, or their strategy, given how central China might be to their strategy. Um, so, you know, I, I think this could potentially have a huge impact, but Again, kind of hard to tell, um, just given you know the the sort of AI flavoring that's been dropped in seemingly almost every you know company's pitch at this point. Or maybe we get this uh, reverse effect where there's a surge in investment, uh, like when they try and uh, you know ban guns, everyone goes and buys guns, you know, and uh, this is going to be implemented next year, and you get grandfathered in. So maybe now's the the time to go out and uh, shop for your Chinese AI startups before they before you can't anymore. But um, I mean, I do think this is an interesting development, this reverse uh, CFIUS rule that really focuses interestingly on private capital versus others. Exactly. Yeah. That's an interesting part of it because it's sort of like these venture capitalists, they explicitly mentioned that venture capitalists always talk about how they provide introductions and they help you navigate markets and everything. And so this is really supposedly not really targeting capital flows. Because there's plenty of money that's going to find its way into this ecosystem, and that's fine. It's more targeting, you know, a, a brain drain and a loss of uh, intellectual property and leadership from the U.S. And uh, it's interesting that that's why they targeted, you know, venture and private specifically because those guys' value add is to help out these companies, and that's specifically what they don't want. Yeah, right. I mean, I, the U.S. government can never say. With a straight face, I mean, even though they do, perhaps um, that we're stopping the flow of capital sort of anywhere. 
it's a bit antithetical to um, you know what is meant to be the the greatest champion of, of capitalism on on the planet, or you know in, in historically. Um, but I mean, this is an obvious way to control, as you as you mentioned, Jeff. You know, know how uh, and you know what at least you know America's edge in AI still seems to be from you know trickling elsewhere. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it seems to be the only bipartisan issue these days as well. Um, so you know, this was planet or AI. Uh, both. I mean, they seem to be inextricably linked at this point. Um, if you, you you hate big tech, but then you also don't want to lose the advantage of our big tech, and you know you you want to whatever preserve uh, some kind of balance of power in the world, and you know both both sides of the house can can always get behind that. Um, it seems, but this is one of the few issues where you know both it seems both both parties can really heap the pressure on the industry um, and and exert you know pretty powerful wins for for the political for the po- political system here. I'd go even a step further and say it's not only bipartisan, but also bilateral in terms of both the US and China seemingly working to restrict investment. So I feel like the cooling effect has already been so substantial that this executive order would really be just a gentle layer on top of everything that's already happened. So I'm skeptical as to whether this will really change the course of things as it currently stands. And uh, with that, we shall move on to what is being heralded online is the next RJR Nabisco. Uh, Paramount sells Simon & Schuster to the private equity firm KKR for $1.62 billion. This happened after a federal judge blocked the rival Penguin Random House from buying Simon & Schuster. The original price last year was $2.2 billion, and it would have been a merger of two of the biggest publishers, which is why it was blocked on anti-competitive grounds. Yeah, I mean, is private equity running out of assets to buy? Um, it, it, I, I don't know. I my understanding of you know of of, of this of, of Simon and Schuster in particular that this is already like the most leanly run publishing house um, that was on the market, um, and you know it's possible you know KKR in, in all its wisdom can perhaps extract more you know cost synergies for, from you know actually owning the business. And of course, they have. You know, I think the head of media and entertainment at KKR is a former, uh, actually, CEO of of, of uh, what, what was the other publishing house? I think of Random House, actually. Yeah, Penguin um, Random as, House as well. Former so CFO. former CFO of Random House. CFO, yeah. So I mean, look, maybe maybe that team is particularly um, skilled at you know extracting or, or creating more value for these types of businesses. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously, by selling to PE, you avoid all of the antitrust um you know uh implications uh that you do selling to you know some someone who does exactly what you do um you obviously gain none of the the benefits of of scale and and other types of synergies associated with that so yeah i mean i don't know is kkr going to bring in the the next great literary talents to uh simon and schuster i mean probably not in my view it seems like a big culture clash if, if i were the great new you know, American novelist um you know i don't know if i'd be going you know i'd be getting wooed by you know private equity um, but you know, I don't know. We'll see. I'm sure Jeff's got a counterpoint here, but I'm, I'm skeptical of this one. And there's a reason people are making comparisons to RJR Nabisco. I mean, look, you have a, uh, a CFO even of random house running the, the firm that gives it a certain flavor of what it's going to be like. You know, it reminds me of, uh, the show 30 rock where it's talking about when GE owned NBC is basically what it's about. And, uh, you know, you basically have the, the corporate bean counters on the top. And they're sitting over the people who are supposed to be doing all this amazing creative work. And it generally doesn't work all that well. But but heck, I don't know if these guys are really in a 
growth period, right? All these um, these types of publishers, it may be time to just figure out how to make it work. And it seemed like with the Random House, um, you know, partnership, you know, you could get maybe a little bit more uh, concentration, which obviously the the regulators thought was too much concentration. But I mean, these guys are really on the ropes. I mean, they could probably use a little bit of monopoly power, especially when you're playing with the likes of Amazon and stuff, who definitely has a, a high level of concentration in what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it, it might be time for more of a chief strategy officer uh, in here to to help clean it up. But um, yeah, I, I am not going to disagree with you here, Adam. I do think it 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 it, it kind of doesn't seem like it's it's on the on the best footing there. But look, it's it, it's an asset that sold. And uh, at least it could sell in this way. Right. It was the one avenue they could pursue. Um, So again, we'll see. Excellent. For our next topic, let's talk about a tale of two cities. In one city are emerging emerging managers uh, who are on track for the worst fundraising year they've had in well over a decade. And on the other side of things are giants, which are raking in absolutely epic amounts of money. This includes Brookfield, which is looking to raise $150 billion this year. Now, Brookfield is crediting excellent opportunities in real estate for their ambitious fundraising. Um, You know, based on what we've seen, emerging managers, smaller managers often outperform bigger managers. So are LPs kind of pulling back on the wrong side of things here? Or what do you guys think? I don't know. Yeah, flight to safety generally isn't necessarily the right move. Um, so probably there's good opportunities within the emerging manager segment. I mean, you can obviously get calls and introductions and meeting with, with whoever you want, who's an emerging manager these days. And these types of things are usually what breed the best returns. So I would be surprised if this wasn't quite a good vintage with uh, not that many folks shopping and the people who are shopping, not knowing when they'll raise their next fund and being pretty selective seems like a good time to be in those industries. We talked last week about how, a lot of these guys who pursue more esoteric strategies actually perform better in the long run. And this is one of the reasons there's just going to be less folks chasing these types of uh, this type of capital. Um, and then, yeah, on the other side that, you know, you've got this big $850 billion asset manager uh, that is doing a little bit more straightforward investing, uh, real estate type investing and all that. And it's hard to see how uh Commercial real estate is in a good spot to invest in right now, um, which is one of the one of the big areas that they invest in. So, I kind of agree with that. Yeah, I mean, he was very adamant that fundamentals are good for most properties. Um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, no, no, more more money has been made and lost on real estate than you know almost any other asset class in, in history, right? I mean, it it's impossible to predict trends across you know a mortgage loan period. So I I mean, you know, Brookfield famously has a number I think 6 or 7 uh commercial real estate investments in in downtown Los Angeles. Um you know, in, in a world where, you know, uh sort of footfall in 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 retail uh continues to continues to fall uh, unless you're really kind of in that ultra luxury segment and now with uh, despite all the headlines of people being forced back to the office, I mean hybrid Sort of the hybrid work system is seems to be the the predominant system for how people will interact with with their workspace, right? So um, I don't know. I bet you wouldn't have predicted that you know ten years ago uh, if you were buying a bunch of properties in downtown Los Angeles or midtown Manhattan. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. Brookfield's obviously been convincing, perhaps more convincing based on the amount of distributable you know income um, they're able to generate. Yeah, has been impressive. 
let's take a look at that. So this kind of strikes me, this $150 billion number that, that they've figured out how to get into the headline. You know, net income fell by that's an acquisition. And then 50 billion of it, yeah, if you dig into it, 50 billion of that came from an acquisition of an insurance company, uh, which seems like, a, you know, Apollo has done that. Um, and it's obviously an interesting strategy, but it's inorganic growth. And so I wonder how much of this, oh, we're going to raise $150 billion a year is actually a cover for our net income was down 30% this, uh, you know, this year. Um, Everyone's struggling. Big and small. Not a tale uh, of two cities. There's only <laughs> one city here. It's called New York City, and everyone there is having a difficult time raising money. Yeah, <laughs> and no one's taking the subway to Midtown. I'm certainly not. So best of luck. They, I do find it interesting, though, these uh, these insurance acquisitions, um, you know, just to take a little, little aside, you know, Warren Buffett famously, Berkshire Hathaway, an insurance company, used the float to invest. And Warren Buffett's initial strategy was basically looks a lot like private equity. Um, and he really was a, a a very one of the first pioneers of basically private equity. And the capital that he used before private equity was really a thing where you could raise much capital was insurance capital. And so it's it's an interesting little to see them circle back around and see all these giant private equity firms going out and buying insurance uh, for their float. And it just kind of shows like, you know, when there isn't capital available in other easy ways, you go and grow organically like this, go and buy and buy someone for their float. And uh, then you take that and turn that around and invest it. And obviously, we see a lot of uh, insurance companies here at TAP and, you know, uh, basically taking that insurance float and reinvesting it smarter and better and in privates can actually make it a lot more valuable as a business overall. I agree. I Great to see sort of the original playbook of Warren Buffett being brought back to life. He uh, certainly has done a few things right. Um, now... For our final topic, we'll talk about the uh, the hottest asset class uh, at the moment, which is private credit. Oaktree is targeting an $18 billion raise for their latest fund, and this would come on top of their uh, existing $179 billion in AUM. Yeah, I mean, private credit certainly the 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 hottest theme you know we've seen in, in, in private markets investing. Um, I mean, really, the last couple of years, but it, but really this year, it seems like every, everyone's just talking about. It. I mean, private credit has has ballooned, um, you know, to to over a trillion dollars, um, you know, coming from these direct lenders like Oak Tree, like HPS, et cetera, um, you know, coming to certainly rival, you know, more traditional, um, you know, debt markets, um, obviously outside of you know, inst- kind of institutional grade, you know, bonds. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, I, it, it's one of the places where capital is actually flooding to. Yeah, I mean, it, because it's got the cyclical and the secular headwinds going for it, right? So the cyclical headwinds uh, this are, are, are tailwinds for it. So the cyclical tailwinds are, you know, you've got an inverted yield curve where they've raised rates a lot and people want to be investing into credit. And then the secular is that a lot of banks and, and stuff are pulling back from doing this type of lending. And, you know, you continue to see more opportunities for private credit to lend to, to great businesses. And so I think everyone sees that and it's it's end up you know making this a very, very large industry. So it's, I think it's going to be really exciting to see how it plays out because generally as things get bigger in terms of quantity, they also change in terms of, of you know how things are actually done. And so as we see larger credit funds, there's going to start to be new specializations and new types of strategies are invented. And uh, I'm excited to see how those things play out over the course of years. I, like, I don't think this is just a cyclical thing. Obviously, the reason it's the hottest right now is because uh, 
the the rates are, are have have been have risen, but I do think that this is going to be a long term trend that we're going to see where people are going to continually allocate more to private credit. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean the private credit's here to stay. I mean, if you just look at the last decade, I mean it's it's grown like a weed, and you know I don't I don't think that's changing, um, particularly because there are, there are no other alternatives. Uh, I mean this this capital will, will will be required and will be needed to be deployed, right? So, I mean the other thing is you have all of these you know, loans, five to seven year, um, you know, term loans and, and and bond issuances, I mean, coming up and, you know, most of those were issued pretty covenant light. There's probably, you know, bullet holes in those credit documents. So I, I think people like Oak Tree, um, they're going to be able to come in and get absolutely the most, you know, preferred, you know, super senior, you know, crazy covenant stripping, whatever transactions you could possibly do here. Um, and, you know, a lot of the the, the the CLOs and, and more traditional lenders are are not going to be on the good side of that trade. Um, they're going to be sort of definitely dealing with uh, getting subordinated um, and you know moving down the cap stack, which which they thought was pretty uh, was pretty secure for them. So you know I, I you know Oak Tree I think is right. I think you know whether there's a recession or not um, with rising interest rates and really loose credit documents, they're going to be active in all of these distressed situations or more distressed situations that we'll see coming up um, and, and positioning themselves really at the top of the capital structure um, in, in, in many of the transactions that they're involved in. Should be a good vintage here as well. Excellent. Well, then with that, let's wrap up this week in private markets. See you next week. Bye-bye.